You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Programmer that you are very fond of and it keeps you on the, yes, on the straight and narrow. We'd like to welcome a pious and sagacious ummah to Legal Talk. And Alhamdulillah, Legal Talk is a program that gives you the ins and outs of illegalities. And what happens in this world and the other world and all the worlds. And imagine the mother of all justice, the mother of all reckoning that will take place when we meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this evening, uh, people, let me welcome you and also our senior attorney, uh, Ashraf Isuf, over there. Hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell us how you're doing this uh, beautiful evening, Ashraf. Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you and our dear listeners. Alhamdulillah, we're doing very well. We've had the opportunity of seeing another glorious week. Uh, Shafat, the weather it seems to be improving. This morning, uh, we seem to have had a bit of rain, strangely enough. Um, we said this morning, it was certainly after 12 and before Fajr. So good signs there already of the change in seasons. Um, you know, Alhamdulillah, a lot to be thankful for. And uh, like I say, we've had the, the grace of seeing another week. Ashraf, Allah bless you. And, uh, you know, many things have been ha- happening. And uh, I've been uh, privileged to watch you on uh, many other uh, platforms uh, this week. But before we get to that, you know, you and I, and, and I, I love uh, the dimensions that, that, that you give. But I was reading, uh, you know, there's an article that says uh, Putin and uh, China just did the unthinkable. And the West is in a big, big trouble, they said. Uh, they say Russia joined forces with China to create a new reserve currency. And uh, this new currency will be based on rare earth minerals like gold, silver, uranium, and uh, so forth and so forth. Ashraf, have you been whispering into the ears of uh, China and Russia? <laughs> no, no, uh, I don't think I even have such a far reach or the ability to speak to these leaders. But it's very interesting that I, I saw that article, actually, and I was wondering what would it really, um, you know, what would it really bring? What, what change would it le- really bring? Because... You know, unless the actual physical gold, okay, is redeemable at the hands of the depositor or the, say, the precious metal, um, uh, let's say uh, platinum or cobalt, unless that's exchangeable uh, and it's not monopolized by a few. In in other words, you see, Shafat, the mistake we make is... um, Money is not supposed to be hoarded. It's supposed to be in circulation. Now, if you replace one fiat currency with another, that doesn't solve the problem. If that fiat currency is saying, I'm holding my reserves, I'm holding your reserves, your deposit uh, in hard currency in, in a, uh, that you can demand exchange, then I think you, you you're taking away two things, the monopoly of control and then the unlimitedness of the of the uh, base metal. So gold in itself, right, uh, we know historically 
uh, had had a, a value from from for time immemorial. In fact, I mean, there's a very strange disease that certain parts of the of the population have, and it's only specific to them. <laughs> it's a it's a a uh, an allergy to gold. And you'll be you'll be mm. you'll be finding that they, these are uh, maybe the same community that loves it the most. So, you know, it, it's quite interesting when you see uh, those things happening. But the the thing is, um, gold in itself, right? We've, we've discussed this before. Uh, they had a value in itself. It was indestructible. It was limited, right? It was limited. And not one person could like control it totally. So that was very that was very interesting historically, right? Now you're actually getting um, tokenization of gold, um, even in digital currencies now, right? Um, so through cryptography, they use um, to encrypt the tokens that are held in gold. But the idea is basically the same. Each token represents a set amount of gold held in a vault. Now, owning physical gold, or or let's say now we're in this exchange, and we know that gold is an excellent hedge against major systemic risks in the marketplace. Uh, we also know that gold is heavily undercorrelated to other major asset classes. In fact, I think it's a Gold Council of America which says that if the real price of gold was was taken into account, it will be ten times its present value. Now, can you imagine if that happens, Shafat? Don't you think South Africa will become a superpower uh, with with our gold reserves? I mean, mm. it'll be a definite elimination of poverty because of the price of gold. And, um, you know, over the years, very little can actually compare to the price of gold, even the U.S. stock market or the bond market or indeed the entire uh, U.S. economy. So gold then becomes an excellent way to diversify uh, our reliance on a basket of currency or owning actually, uh, you know, uh, paper money. So the difficulty I think people will then have is how to access your gold whenever you need it. Now, let's not make any mistake about this. Uh, If it's stored at home, you become your own custodian, but then it's a risk of getting robbed, right? Or you can then take it to a safe deposit box, but you're paying an amount every month or every year, and they will then uh, store it in your name using a secure storage. Um, but it's interesting to see there's actually now, um, for the first time, I think, uh, there is a, um, organization in, in, uh, Switzerland where you can actually go and, uh, collect your gold. Now, if, before we, we actually think that this is un-Islamic, this is very, very Islamic. There was a thing called a wakala. A wakala, like comes from wakil, is a person that held the physical gold for you, and you could always then go back 
and get it. Um, so, so you know, I think there's many layers to the to the conversation. Instead of just saying, okay, we're switching to gold. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't know if this is related or not, but I happened to see a uh, documentary on uh, Gaddafi's exploits and his attempts to convert his uh, international trade into gold rather than a um, a token currency, a fiat currency. And uh, some say that was the end of him. Others seem to say that the same fate visited uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, but as you can see, you know, it's not straightforward because on the other hand, Shafat, it's senseless having a currency in gold if you don't have the marketplace in gold. Now, what do I mean, mean by that? So the traditional marketplace of Islam was there was a sheriff or sharif of the marketplace. And it's quite amazing how the marketplace existed. In fact, Medina is a prime example of that. Uh, the first thing that was introduced after the mosque, which was a place of prayer, was the marketplace. Because the marketplace is the lifeblood of humans. But this marketplace was quite unique in three respects. Number one, you did not book your place to trade. First come, first serve. It's like the, the mosque, you know, the musilla in the mosque. First come, first serve. Number two, there was no, uh, there was no rental taken for trading space. And third, there was no difference between wholesale and resale. There was one price that was existed for the day and the sheriff would go around. And if you had a complaint about poor goods or price fixing or cutting prices, well, the justice was uh, immediate. You know, there was a judgment immediately there. So I think very interesting to see that, yes, people are waking up to the one fact that the dollar cannot continue as the reserve currency of the world or the basket of currencies. And second, that there is a move towards an alternative system. But I mean, the alternative system has already existed in the form of the euro and not, not much made uh, any difference. Yeah? Anyway, I don't want to go beyond that topic. It's a very deep but interesting topic. Absolutely, Ashraf. But, you know, whilst you're talking and uh, a pool of thoughts uh, ran uh, through my mind, I'd like to run it uh, with you. You know, uh, many are, are paranoid now. They say, you know, take your money out of the bank. Uh, but then uh, that paper money has no value. You know, very soon they'll say, oh, that paper money has no value. Uh, we're going to change to a new uh, uh, currency. So the other alternative, Ashraf, is to buy, you know, those uh, lovely gold dinars uh, that you've got. And then uh, the big question is, and here, uh, you know, another fiat uh, currency will be coming into the equation. Run by whom, Ashraf? So again, it's interesting to know that the same um, power systems that run one form of banking run another form of banking. So again, remember I was saying that it makes very little just to uh, change the token of exchange uh, without changing the marketplace and without there being justice in the marketplace and without there indeed being a monopoly, you know, of, of this uh, in the marketplace. So um, 
yeah, I, I, you know, it's not the end in itself to suggest that you could just change the um, the the means of exchange and like a magic wand, it'll clean everything up. I, I think Shafat, if I could just say in, in one sentence, we must understand that Islam is one deen. You know, it's all encompassing, and you would find that it's completely different from um, from other systems. And it's worthwhile um, delving into it on a serious level to actually find out why has this these set of divine laws accompanied the divine decree, the command of the of the shahada that um, we only accept Allah as as one God and the, and the Rasul sallam, as His messenger. So it's a complete system on its own. Um, completely uh, diversified from the others. And and therefore, it will be difficult to find a solution if you're using a hybrid model, if you know what I'm saying. It's a, it's a, it's a standalone. Now, Ashraf, uh, you look at the uh, Arabs, uh, they have trillions and trillions of dollars uh, to spend and, you know, the Neom City coming through and uh, so forth. And, you know, the hutch taxes, they make lots and lots of money. And, uh, you know, these trillions of dollars, are they valued with gold or is just another fictitious uh, fiat, uh, uh, fiat money that is being, uh, you know, flaunted around? Are they, so remember, know, they're only to... using gold for uh, limited use. Uh, it's uh, sold in the marketplace for jewelry. There's some gold thread in the Kiswa. And maybe there's a gold pen or two lying around somewhere in Mecca. The um, the currency of the day is the real and the and the dollar. So it's interesting to see that during the 2008 financial meltdown, when the Arabs tried to withdraw their deposits from American banks, Americans say, "Sorry, man, you know what? Uh, it's gone. Eh? It's liquidated. Uh, Chase and all these banks are gone. And sorry, your deposits also went. So." Grand theft larceny on its own, Shafat. But wow. that's the answer to your question. I don't think there's a single Arab nation or a single Arab ruler or a single Arab family that holds uh, gold reserves or trades in gold or sets off their transactions in gold. Indeed, if that happened, it would be a revolution. Um, mm -hmm. The last I know was there was a time that Dubai was expecting to accept the dirham and the dinar as co-currencies and certain shops would, would receive it, uh, would accept it. And then there was uh, a big effort in Kelantan province in Malaysia about 10, 15 years ago, where again they tried to bring uh, gold as a currency. But <laughs> amazingly, in Indonesia, a man was charged merely for um, suggesting that you should be trading in gold and silver. And they said that that was a threat on the sovereignty of the Indonesian government, uh, which is very strange because no governments own the right to produce their own currency. It's a private enterprise that does that. Did you know that? That no current, no government prints its own mm. currency. No, including the Fed. That's, that's where it starts from. Mm. Uh, you know, like Zimbabwe and other countries, but they uh, 
commission uh, Germany to print their dollars and so forth and it comes into the country. No, uh, I mean the authority, no, not just the, the transaction of printing. Okay, okay. The I monetary authority is not the government, it's the okay. reserve bank. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, Ashraf, uh, you are very uh, busy. Uh, by the way, by the way, the gold uh, dinar, uh, what's the going price now, Ashraf? I have no idea, Ashraf. No idea. And uh, if uh, people are saying, yeah, take your money out of the bank and invest in uh, gold dinar. So, uh, that's but we a have a, we have a legal currency called the uh, the Krugerrand. It's a it's a pure coin. Yeah, pure legal gold coin. currency. It's in the uh, you know it's not illegal. So people should uh, rather invest in uh, the uh, the Krugerrand. Must be a, a, I don't know what's the latest on the Krugerrand. I have no idea, I, I don't follow this on the. I tell you, you are a man, got so much of knowledge, but hey, you can see. Your connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now I've been watching you this uh, week. You've been very busy giving uh, very, various uh, media, lots of interviews. Very interesting indeed. And uh, tell the Umar what you were doing, Ashraf. No, I was just called upon by, I think it was SABC or somebody, to comment on the, um, on the NPA's announcement that they've... Uh, taken the Dubai extradition process of the Gupta brothers uh, a step forward. So I was just reflecting by way of background before I get into that. There's about six or eight interesting extradition requests from South Africa and out of South Africa. So from South Africa, the extradition request is against Shepard Bushiri from Malawi, uh, the Guptas from Dubai, and Ronald Bobroff and his son that were attorneys that um, uh, escaped with uh, while they were on bail and they're sitting in Australia. It was interesting to see that the funds that they had deposited in Israel, um, 100 million, uh, the NPA could only secure 15 million back. Um, the uh, Israeli authorities are saying that the balance will not be repatriated. It now belongs to the Israeli state. The other interesting question is how many extradition requests are pending in South Africa? So now we have the US extra, extraditing or attempting to extradite uh, Chang. Chang was the ex-Minister of Finance of Mozambique and he was involved in a huge, huge scandal uh, which was denominated in dollars. And as you know, uh, the, if there's a charge that you denominate, your, your, um, your crime was denominated in the dollar, well, the U.S. says, we, the FBI, have jurisdiction over you. We saw this during the World Cup arrests uh, where the FBI uh, uh, exercised extraterritorial jurisdiction and went to fetch uh, these World Cup officials from around the world to stand trial in the U.S. So there was another one with a uh, Belgian arms dealer uh, who was responsible for huge amounts of destruction in Africa. And he was in South Africa on a, on a visa. And uh, they, they, they found him guilty in absentia. And now they're trying to extradite him from South Africa. And then there was an Australian pedophile who had a long history of uh, offences against him. 
And he was also found living the life in South Africa. And uh, there was an attempt to extradite him as well. So these are all legal processes controlled by the internal um, and domestic legislations of the country. But I was contrasting that with the matter of Rashid Jibai, uh, who was the only civilian other than the Guptas I know that were uh, privileged to use the Waterkloof military air, air force base, which is a um, air force base here in Pretoria. Uh, the Guptas landed here with a wedding party, but Rashid Jibai was extradited or extracted uh, on a private plane from Water Kluif. Then there was the other gentleman called Mohammed Tantush, who was uh, removed extrajudicially as well from uh, the Cape Town region where he was seeking uh, asylum. And he, I think he was taken off to Libya to face some or other charges there. But I think he was involved in some bombings of, uh, or the charges were that he was involved in some bombings. But again, those are examples of how um, there's an extrajudicial process in which extradition takes place. Some would call it kidnapping, some would call it uh, uh, rendering, you know, those terms that they use to, to move people around the world. Um, uh, rendition, you know, hey, the rendition you're talking about. Rendition, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. No, no, no you know. Uh, go ahead, Ashraf. I'm uh, interesting. What uh, information you're giving us? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about how, like, like how uh, are be different people treated? You know, uh, like uh, Margaret Thatcher's son, Mark Thatcher was implicated in a coup in middle Africa. And uh, he was found guilty and given a 3 million rand fine in the Cape Town High Court this is some years ago. Can you imagine if this was uh, if this was termed a terrorist attack by uh, extremists? And uh, you, you, do you think that such a light sentence would have been inflicted on the perpetrators, uh, the terrorists? But here, there's uh, you can see the how how uh, privilege extends all over the world. That's the only point I wanted to make there. No, absolutely brilliant. And uh, I was thinking about Al Bashir. You remember the uh, ex uh, Sudanese, uh, you know, uh, prime minister or leader uh, when he was in South Africa, and you know, I think it was the U.S. was uh, all out to get him. And Jay Z, he said, "No ways, my friend's going nowhere." Uh, talk to us about that, you know, and. Uh, Eventually, the, uh, Jay-Z took him out uh, without uh, him being touched, uh, Ashraf. I mean, that was never proven. They don't know who that last passenger was on that flight that left South Africa. But certainly it left in defiance of a high court order, which is really a tragedy because I think the al-Bashir um, uh, arrest and, uh, and uh, having to face uh, charges of... Uh, war crimes under universal jurisdiction that South Africa employs would have been very, very interesting for us as a legal precedent. I mean, can you imagine if we Tony Blair then pitches up here on our shows and uh, you get a, a warrant for his arrest for war crimes or, or Bush, uh, you know, who's now admitted to uh, waterboarding all of those inmates in uh, uh, Abu Ghraib. Uh, and uh, and uh, in Afghanistan, 
in the in the in the uh, in that air force base mm. um that would be very interesting it would have been set it would have set a beautiful precedent i think legally we could have then had a successful conviction arrest first of all and then standing of trial if not necessarily a conviction but i think that was a m- m- opportunity lost uh ashraf and uh, the you know the problem is uh, that uh Uh, extradition are given out or you know sent out to people that uh, commit uh, crimes and uh, these people uh, look for safe havens and uh, then you find uh, p- places like uh, dubai and uh, you know uh, panama and i don't know where and where they go to but these are safe havens and the, the, it's a, a a den of uh, or it's a meeting of all these people that do all the wrong things and that amass wealth and are considered to be billionaires uh, talk to us about this uh, that scenario where the uh, you know the billionaires are stealing and enjoying uh, the ill-gotten wealth well i mean there was a report that london is the haven for that because of uh, of how these billionaires take their f- uh, funding and buy property and uh, you know and and how how the money is ultimately um converted into real hard assets uh, so this was very interesting in the recent uh, uh, russian invasion of Uk- of ukraine so they were looking for all these russian billionaire assets whether it's yachts or whether it was buildings or whether it was bank accounts indeed you know there are certain countries like malta and um, cyprus that was also handing out uh, second citizenship by investment uh and then you found that a lot of chinese and russians had uh, availed themselves of those second passports uh but come back to your point definitely looks like dubai right now is on the on the radar because now that they've concluded this treaty with south africa this treaty was started in 2018 it was only ratified on 9th of june 2021 and there are very specific uh legal steps that must be taken for extradition from uh dubai and maybe it's worthwhile if we can have a look at what had happened there there is basically initially a interpol arrest or interpol red notice that says to the authorities look here's these people they alleged to have committed a crime here uh can you kindly arrest them so then they their domestic legislation will kick in uh before this is now um Uh, before a special tribunal of three judges that hear the matter initially in the extradition process and uh, this is actually held in private but for example now the, this is where the gupta brothers are they can still appeal this uh, before the court of cassation which is the emirates highest court and this as you can imagine process will take a few months um and and we know that the gupta brothers haven't accepted the extradition request um then the dubai government will then request certain documents uh and the south african governments will have to send a writ- written request to say that the information uh is in line with the treaty signed with the with the uae now so it's interesting when you look at some of the uh documents that they might exchange one of them is the identity details of the accused the location and nationality of the accused the details of the offenses 
and then importantly certified copy of the warrant of arrest issued here. Now we know only this week the warrant of arrest was uh, in, was issued in the New Lane and the Estina Dairy matter. So in the New Lane matter, it's alleged that uh, the company is owned by Mr. Iqbal Sharma and that the allegations are that uh, the Guptas had raided the coffers of uh, the agricultural uh, department in the Free State and then enriched themselves uh, 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 by by all of those cash amounts, and we know that about 30 million apparently was earmarked for that wonderful wedding in Sun City um, that you know made such headlines. Just on a side note, there I read that the waiters were very upset because the Guptas only apparently only requested white waiters and waitrons for the wedding. So I don't know if that was true, but it was an interesting side note. I mean, it tells you uh, if that is true, the disdain and disrespect um, they demonstrated to the rank and file of our country. Um, but let's back to the extradition process. Now, with regard to the identity details and location, it was interesting to note that there was some ambivalence about whether the Gupta brothers or their wives or their mother were citizens or not. Uh, the then minister, Malusi Gigaba, wasn't able to say clearly what the picture was. One day he would say they PR holders, the next day would say, uh, no, no, but they, they actually citizens. So now we know that they're Indian citizens by origin, but Indian law doesn't allow dual citizenship. So it'll be interesting to see, A, is this request to extradite South Africans from Dubai, or B, is it to extradite Indians? I still believe that they're South Africans because there was an application in the High Court for the Gupta, by the Guptas to demand uh, their passports be reissued. So if they're living in Dubai on expired passports, Whose passports do they then have? I mean, apart from the extradition, mm. it's interesting to see that they weren't arrested for being illegal immigrants in Dubai. Because let's say they were now investors in Dubai, in this golden scheme that Dubai has, then that has to be stamped surely in your passport. Or I mean, that's the process here and around the world. But you can't have a valid visa in an invalid travel document, you see, Shabba. So these are the interesting things that just come about in the exchange of documentation. And obviously that goes to nationality as well. Now, we know that the um, some of the pushbacks that was employed by um, the uh, the Guptas was that they this was a political thing and uh, they were scared that they would be treated badly in respect of the human rights. Uh, but I, I think you know the this work that was took years to compile and complete at great cost about a billion rand by Chief Justice Zondo. It's a thorough job. Um, 
and there's recommendations there. I think they will have difficulty in proving that uh, they um, are not part of the state capture because this was actually proven by way of evidence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, we were talking about based on the red notice that is issued by Interpol, then they are arrested, as we know, and then they brought to the prosecution's department. And um, obviously he hasn't complied, so they haven't brought the next step, which is to formally extradite them. In this case, the Gupta brothers have rejected the request. And now the UAE prosecution and the courts have to weigh the information sent by South Africa. And um, so, so this, there's, a, there's like a federal law of 2006, which covers, uh, this is a domestic law in Dubai, right? Which covers Article 4 of the extradition uh, treaty with South Africa. And as I said, the Guptas could raise that. I think they actually have to say they will face inhumane treatment or that the crime is political or politically motivated. Now, it's interesting if they raise that politically or, or politically motivated, because I mean, how do they then account for their lavish lifestyle here? Apparently they had the ATM in Saxonville. I mean, how many houses have an ATM? This wedding cost 30 million. This was like the wedding of the decade. It's going to be difficult to say that you're suffering inhumane treatment when you uh, lived it up here. We don't know if the Dubai authority is going to request uh, additional information. But an interesting thing is Article 3 of the Extradition Treaty. Here it provides that the UAE may grant extradition in specific cases. That includes if the action is an offense in both countries. And the, punish the punishment is imprisonment for a year or more. Then there's a lot of offenses relating to taxation, exchange control, customs, and other revenue matters. Under exchange control itself, Shafat, it's interesting to note that the Guptas were, were, were using commercial banks, including the Bank of Baroda. And then they were ultimately trying to buy a bank locally when the other banks refused to do business with them. You remember the bank started pulling out but then the question arises, how did the Guptas move all this money out? Um, I mean, why is that like such a quiet avenue that no one's pursuing? Because banks must definitely have been complicit in this. This was not money taken through suitcases and handbags through ORT. This is billions and billions of rents. So I think there you'd find that the Dubai authorities would be a lot more willing to assist. But we don't know yet if it's an offense in Dubai to have brought money in, irrespective of the origins of that money. So that's uh, interesting, but definitely there might be something to do with how the money was moved. And remember earlier on, we spoke about the immense powers of the FBI. 
if it was dollarized, well, you can expect some intervention by them. Now, the Article 15 is also interesting in the extradition treaty because that one says that the UAE is entitled to seize all property, articles or documentation that is found in the territory of the UAE which is connected with the offence. Now, the question then is, has the UAE or will the UAE seize the money standing to the credit of the Gupta brothers in Dubai? There's also talk that they might have already diversified and gone off to one of the stands. I don't know if it's Tajikistan or Uzbekistan or Kurdistan, I don't know which stand, but apparently they're there as well. To me, uh, okay, they're right now in custody, but to me, it, it's very interesting how they looked completely nonchalant uh, in Dubai. In fact, there was a journalist who tried to try to take a picture of them and he was promptly arrested for violating their freedom in, in, in Dubai. So it looks like they enjoy quite a lot of uh, privilege there as well. In the interim, we know that they tried to apply for bail and the bail was then refused. But, you know, if it's granted, they could give a, a security, uh, they may surrender the passport, which as we now suspect is expired, which then brings about the next question, do they have, uh, have they fallen foul of the English, uh, the Indian immigration regime by being citizens of another country without their permission? And of course, we know that the prosecution in Dubai has a right to reject this um, bail application. So, we know that the Ministry of Justice has also said from their perspective that the arrests were made in keeping with the extradition agreement with South Africa. And I think from their perspective, they're saying that this is a clear statement of the UAE's efforts to combat financial crime. But interestingly, you've got to ask yourself then, uh, Shafat, what happens to the UAE if it doesn't allow uh, this kind of freedom of uh, bringing money in and out? And you know also that you can buy actual gold biscuits from a vending machine in Dubai. I mean, their import and export of gold uh, is unregulated largely. So it's interesting to see how far they would keep to the extradition request while at the same time being aware that they can't scare off all the other people that would like to bring their cash and gold and uh, other, uh, let's call it investments, into Dubai. You know, Ashraf, you, you, you actually make a brilliant uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, brilliant point, and I, I, I really, I was enjoying. I really enjoyed every word that you told me. You actually gave me a lesson. So, you know, what I understand from what you said, uh, yeah, so there are two states involved in extradition: the territorial state and the requesting uh, state. And the territorial state, Ashraf, is uh, where the accused or the convict 
uh, or the convict uh, has uh, uh, flown to or flees to uh, to escape the trial or punishment, uh, uh, you know, from a, 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 a state that is requesting it. On the other hand, the requesting state is the one where the offence is or is is allegedly committed. So we are the uh, we are the requesting state in other in 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 the true sense, Ashraf. In this case, yeah. Yeah. So we making the request, and as you said, uh, it's like a catch twenty two situation for uh, Dubai in this sense, uh, where uh, I mean, as you said, they're selling uh, vending machines, selling biscuits, gold biscuit bars, and so forth. And uh, then you find that the wheeling and dealing that is done, uh, nothing is above board. And this is why the people go there to uh, wash the dirty uh, money or something. Ashraf, am I correct in my in my assumption? Well, I mean, they have less restrictions than most uh, other countries. Um, you know, um, I, I mean, they, they, there's very, very little activity that, that you really have to account for. I think um, the known crimes of drugs and prostitution will, will bring a big no-no. But uh, I don't think there's a financial house in the world uh, uh, that doesn't turn a blind eye to the Shafat. It's not Dubai alone. I mean, uh, I gave you an example of London. London is a known haven for uh, criminals to to come and convert uh, their ill-gotten gains. You know, Ashraf, I, 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 can, I can back that up. Imran Khan's got a big problem. He says the chores are out of the country. And there, yeah, there's one very big one there. Uh, he's doing everything. He's, uh, everything is done from there. He's even uh, uh, telling the people in Pakistan or his uh, his goons in Pakistan what to do to Imran Khan in Parliament and what I mean uh, what to do with the Imran Khan's uh, party and so forth. Yeah, you, you you're absolutely right. And in the, in his case, he's got so many properties in uh, London. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on there, Ashraf. Yeah, I mean, look at the Libyan properties that, that were owned in London under Gaddafi. And now some of them are, some of them are like derelict properties, right? Uh, look at the, um, the magnificent uh, palace-like homes that uh, people own in the exclusive areas of Knightsbridge and other areas um, or, or near the... Uh, official residence of the Queen, Buckingham Palace, and I mean these are all expensive, expensive properties. I mean, can you just imagine the amount of money? Now, Shafat, we know that money is not carried in your suitcase, and we know the check has now become uh, obsolete. The question is, how how is this money moved all over the world, if not worth? The participation, consent, and turning of the blind eye by the financial institutions that exist. So, you know, where does a buck stop? How many people are complicit in these crimes? Uh, You know, when will they answer for these things? And uh, what is, you know, how are you going to trim their immense powers? I mean, I remember... Very interestingly, in 2008, when the Queen of England was visiting the um, Central Bank 
uh, of England, which is uh, in the city of London. And uh, they got on record and <laughs> she asked these guys there, how did you let this happen? Now that's interesting because not even the queen is in charge of the fiscus. She was visiting the Bank of England, which is in the city of London, which theoretically still requires her to seek permission to enter the one square mile of the city of London. It's not London, eh? it's a city within a city. And um, she was in the basement, and that's where usually the gold reserves are kept. And she asked these bank officials, but how did you let this happen? Now, I mean, she's the queen, and I suppose she's got that privilege of asking these people. Um, I don't think she got an answer, Shafat. I'll be interesting to it'll be. I'll be interested to know if she did. Hmm. She must have aged. Uh... A little more when she got to know that hey, this gold is all uh, you know is gone. Is no more there. And uh, what did they do to all this gold, uh, Ashraf? What did they do to it? Tell me. No, not the gold is there. She asked oh. them how how did they manage to? You know what happened in the uh, in the subprime mortgage uh, market, right? Okay, okay. So. I mean, this led to the total meltdown of the financial uh, the financial system as we know it. So just a quick recap of the subprime mortgage market, right? Can you imagine if two people are sitting at a um, at a restaurant and the one guy is having a feast and the other guy is having water, and the guy uh, having water <laughs> can't afford the the meal. And the guy next to him says, I don't worry. Yes, credit, you know. He says, but I'm not earning. And he says, I don't worry. You'll pay me next month, man. And he says, okay, all right. I'll take the credit. I'll I'll have this meal. And um, so the meal will say take 12 months to pay. And you've now had this meal and it's wonderful. And the first month you didn't pay. The next month you managed to pay a little bit. In the third month, you didn't pay fourth, fifth. You can't just pay because you don't have an income. Well, the guy who bought you the meal said to you, hey, just sign this IOU that you'll pay me in 12 months time for this meal I'm giving you today. It's 100 pounds. So he takes that IOU and he goes off in the international market and he goes to a country like Iceland where they have a big pension fund. And Iceland is looking to secure their pensions over the next 20 years. And they say, hey, you know what? Look here, I got an IOU, man. The guy's going to pay in 12 months' time. And Iceland says, oh, that's very good. You know, this sounds really liquid. Uh, let us buy the IOU from you. So Ireland then takes its pension funds and it buys the IOU. And guess what? The IOU was never paid. Gone, yeah. So multiply that by the millions wow. and millions of mortgages that were handed out in the US. You know what they call junk bonds? Mm. Yeah, so that, that is exactly what had happened. And so the IOU was useless and the, uh, the, uh, the Icelandic condition, uh, uh, country suddenly saw, whoa, 
There goes our pension fund. Now we won't be able to pay the pension out to the old Icelanders. So we got a problem here. And um, we know that populations are living way, way beyond the 70s and 80s. But uh, Europe has got a zero population growth. Uh, it has a large community of old people that are not productive. And young people are not having children. So there's zero growth. So these, because, I mean, you know, there won't be a long-term taxation of these, uh, of, of the workforce. So these are some of the interesting questions that come out in the wash, Shafat. Yeah, uh, definitely interesting in, indeed. You know, uh, you, you brought in uh, so many scenarios, Ashraf, and I bless you for that. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the, is in, 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 in South Africa, you know, uh, South Africa's domestic laws, uh, does it uh, provide for, you know, extradition of persons accused of crimes in which, uh, you know, they are punished in this country. What are the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the punishment for this, uh, for uh, offenses on extradition in, 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 in South Africa, Ashraf? So let me understand the question properly there. The one that we raised earlier on was of universal jurisdiction. Yeah, that, 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 I want local, what uh, locally, if you know, if some, if they no, are. No, remember, extradition is dependent upon the treaty between the territory and the requesting state. Okay. So it depends depends who we have this treaty with, you know. Okay, I, I see. So if someone, like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm afraid the South African, if you look at the South Africa's domestic law, uh, it, it, it provides for extradition of uh, persons accused yes. of crimes which are punishable with a sentence of what? You know, if, if they come in here, will they get imprisonment or a form of a deprivation of uh, maybe in in the case of Guptas they had our passports what uh, what will happen what type of punishment will they get six months or ten months like that that the Dudu Mayeni she had to pay about uh, two hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand for you know uh, bringing a essay into disrepute and so forth so what is the punishment for those oh you mean are... what would be the punishment yes uh, okay so so Punishment always follows a conviction, and a conviction follows a trial. Okay. A trial follows a proper prosecution, uh, a preparedness, and and uh, that follows a uh, a proper charge sheet. So we know that the NPA it's still work in progress, although they've issued warrants in only two matters. There are there are no other matters on the on the rolls yet. So whether it's ESCOM or SAA or whatever, whatever is alleged to have happened, we're not there yet. So I think the, the answer to, let's say, what would be the punishment following a conviction in the mm. Estinia New Lane uh, matters? Well, I think it will be along the same uh, as other citizens, they are citizens that are co-accused. So if these are still South African citizens, you can expect um, a fairly stiff sentence, depending on what uh, the ultimate finding of the court is, whether they were the planners, whether they were the enablers. Look, I think there's a nice piece of legislation to kick off with. It's called POCA, Proceeds of Crime Act. In POCA, if they can uh, prove racketeering. Racketeering is widely defined as where two or more people participate in the joint 
wrongful activity. There's just a colloquial transaction. I mean, uh, uh, definition. It's not accurate, but you're getting the gist. Well, there's a minimum sentence of 15 years there. So that's a good uh, start off, uh, Shafat, under poker. I tell you, Ashraf, you make you like my professori this evening, and I'm learning a lot from you. And I hope our listeners, you're enjoying uh, Ashraf. And uh, before we go, Ashraf, you know, uh, what are some of the crimes that may, uh, uh, you know, may be a subject to extradition? Give us some of the crimes that, that uh, leads to uh, ex- uh, extradition, uh, Ashraf. Uh, certainly, crimes against humanity, um, torture, kidnapping—you know, any of the serious crimes. Um, genocide, uh, definitely, um, you know, Kretcher is facing an extradition from his home country of uh, Czechoslovakia. And mm. Kretcher was, was found guilty of local crimes here, gangsterism and whatever else the charges were. But he's uh, spending his time in prison. I've also given the example of Michael Chang, the ex-Minister uh, of Finance of Mozambique. So that was an economic crime. Definitely the guy who a- arranged this this whole uh, massacre, this on uh, this arms dealer from Belgium. I mean, he's directly complicit in uh, those things. He's trying to fight his extradition uh, from the country. Um, another example will definitely be sexual offenses. In this case, pedophilia. Uh, I think... Um, yeah, more of the serious crimes. And then you have economic crimes, right? Money laundering. Um, I think drugs is definitely very, very high. Terrorism, you know, this thing called terrorism is uh, seems to receive very mm. quick attention. And so you could be facing extradition there. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, extrajudicially or judicially. Um so yeah, these are some of the things that that you could uh, you could find um, that that um, you know that you're liable for. Remember, there's also this guy here, the 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 guy from DRC. Uh, I think he's down in the Eastern Cape, and there's another pastor pastor somewhere. And, uh, yes, so he was involved now in uh, racketeering. Uh, using the um, the auspices of the church, but carrying out crimes against minors, uh, sexual offences. So, so that's like some of the really serious stuff that you've seen. I tell you, Ashraf, uh, Alhamdulillah, I really enjoyed uh, my time with you, which I always do. And I, I you know, even the listeners, uh, you know, the, the the positive feedback uh, we get when you come on to. And Alhamdulillah, as I said, you're my right hand on the show. Your parting words, uh, Ashraf? Well, again, uh, thanks very much for the opportunity. Without the listeners, we won't be able to do our duty of um, spreading a little bit of knowledge about the law and some wider topics. Uh, So we're very happy uh, to be of service. But without them, it would not be, uh, we can't be carried out. It's not a... It's not, this is not a two-man conversation like between you and I. And also to you and your producers and the station uh, owners and whoever made this possible, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's a means of, they say if you know one line, you must, 
you must talk about it and spread the knowledge. So uh, very great, grateful for their uh, assistance in making this possible. And always the parting words are remember us in your duas. Remember the favors of Allah. Uh, keep up the Yasin. Remember us. Uh, the Yasin is also for the dead. Remember the those that have passed on. Remember those that have challenges, especially those that finding uh, life difficult because it's expensive now, Shafat. You know, we can see the price of petrol and and the shortage of food and, you know, the threats of mass starvation. Um, and uh, indeed, certain areas of the country still suffering from droughts. So we ask uh, our people to pray for all of these things and the safety of the Ummah, our well-being, and very importantly, to return to the deen of Islam in its totality. Yes, sir. Jazakallah khair for that, Ashraf. You have a blessed evening indeed. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, people, time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah we will continue after that.